Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to your Good Friday episode. And what better way to start your day or finish your evening with a tale by Bram Stoker. The very first part of the 1897 story Dracula is your story for today. This will be a lengthy, ongoing series that I will be narrating, adding sound effects and matching music to give you the best possible narration of this classic tale. And today is the beginning of this series, on a good Friday of all days. So turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and don't let the bedbugs, or anything for that matter, bite. Dracula, Chapter 1 Jonathan Harker's journal, kept in shorthand. 3rd of May, Bistritz. Left Munich at 8.35pm on 1st of May, arriving at Vienna early next morning. Should have arrived at 6.46, but train was an hour late. Budapest seems a wonderful place. From the glimpse which I got it from the train, and the little I could walk through the streets, I feared to go very far from the station, as we had arrived late and would start as near the correct time as possible. The impression I had was that we were leaving the west and entering the east, the most western of splendid bridges over the Danube, which is here of noble width and depth took us among the traditions of Turkish rule. We left in pretty good time, and came after nightfall to Klausenberg. Here I stopped for the night at the Hotel Royale. I had for dinner, or rather supper, a chicken done up some way with red pepper, which was very good but thirsty. Memo. Get recipe for Mina. I asked the waiter and he said it was called Paprika Hendel, and that, as it was a national dish, I should be able to get it anywhere along the Carpathians. I found my smattering of German very useful here, indeed. I don't know how I should be able to go on without it. Having had some time at my disposal when in London, I had visited the British Museum, and made search among the books and maps in the library regarding Transylvania. It had struck me that some foreknowledge of the country could hardly fail to have some importance in dealing with a nobleman of that country. I find that the district he named is in the extreme east of the country, just on the borders of three states, Transylvania, Moldavia, and Bukovina, in the midst of the Carpathian Mountains one of the wildest and least known portions of Europe. I was not able to light on any map or work given the exact locality of the castle Dracula, and there are no maps of this country as yet to compare with our own ordnance survey maps. But I found that Bistritz, the post town named by Count Dracula, is a fairly well-known place. I shall enter here some of my notes as they may refresh my memory when I talk over my travels with Mina. In the population of Transylvania, there are four distinct nationalities, Saxons in the south, and mixed with them, Wallachs, who are the descendants of the Dacians, Magyars in the west, and Zekels in the east and north. I am going among the latter, who claim to be descended from Attila and the Huns. This may be so, from when the Magyars conquered the country in the 11th century, they found the Huns settled in it. I read that every known superstition in the world is gathered into the horseshoe of the Carpathians, as if it were the center of some sort of imaginative whirlpool. If so, my stay may be very interesting. Memo, I must ask the Count all about them. 
I did not sleep well, though my bed was comfortable enough, for I had all sorts of queer dreams. There was a dog howling all night under my window, which may have had something to do with it, or it may have been the paprika, for I had to drink up all the water in my carafe, and was still thirsty. Towards morning I slept and was awakened by the continuous knocking at my door, so I guess I must have been sleeping sadly then. I had for breakfast more paprika and a sort of porridge of maize flour which they said was mamaliga and eggplant stuffed with force meat. A very excellent dish, which they called impaletta. Memo, get, get recipe, recipe for this also. I had to hurry breakfast, for the train started a little bit before 8, or rather it ought to have done so, for after rushing to the station at 7.30, I had to sit in the carriage for more than an hour before we began to move. It seems to me that the further east you go, the more unpunctual are the trains. What ought they to be in China? All day long we seemed to dawdle through a country which was full of beauty of every kind. Sometimes we saw little towns or castles on the top of steep hills, such as we see in old missiles. Sometimes we ran by rivers and streams which seemed for the wide stony margin of each side of them to be subject to great floods. It takes a lot of water and running strong to sweep the outside edge of a river clear. At every station there were groups of people, sometimes crowds, and in all sorts of attire. Some of them were just like the peasants at home or those I saw coming through France and Germany, with short jackets and round hats, and homemade trousers. But others were very picturesque. The women looked pretty, except when you got near them, but they were very clumsy about the waist. They had all full white sleeves of some kind or other, and most of them had big belts with a lot of strips, of something fluttering from them like the dresses in a ballet. But of course, there were petticoats under them. The strangest figures we saw were the Slovaks, who were more barbarian than the rest, with their big cowboy hats, great baggy dirty white trousers, white linen skirts, and enormous heavy leather belts, nearly a foot wide, all studded over with brass nails. They wore high boots with their trousers tucked into them, and had long black hair and heavy black moustaches. They are very picturesque, but do not look proposing. On the stage, they would be set down at once as some old oriental band of brigands. They are, however I am told, rather harmless and wanting in natural self-assertion. It was on the dark side of twilight when we got to Bistritz, which is a very interesting old place, being particularly on the frontier, for the Bogo Pass leads from it and leads into Bogovina. It has a very stormy existence, and it certainly shows marks of it. Fifty years ago, a series of great fires took place, which made terrible havoc on five separate occasions. At the very beginning of the 17th century, it underwent a siege of three weeks and lost 13,000 people, the casualties of war proper being assisted by famine and disease. Count Dracula had directed me to go to the Golden Crone Hotel, which I found, to my great delight, to be thoroughly old-fashioned. For of course I wanted to see all I could of the ways of the country, I was evidently expected as well. For when I got near the door I faced a cherry-looking elderly woman in the usual peasant dress, white undergarments with long double apron, front and back of coloured stuff fittings almost too tight for modesty. When I came close she bowed and said, The heir, Englishman? Yes, I said. Jonathan Harker. She smiled, 
and gave some message to an elderly man in white shirt sleeves, who had followed her to the door. He went, but immediately returned with a letter. Here you are, sir. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovina. A place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and will bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one, and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. 4th of May. I found that my landlord had got a letter from the Count, directing him to secure the best place of the coach for me. But on making inquiries as to details, he seemed somewhat reticent, and pretended that he could not understand my German. This could not be true, because up to then he had understood it perfectly. At least, he answered my questions exactly as if he did. He and his wife, the old lady who received me, looked at each other in a frightened sort of way. He mumbled out that the money had been sent in a letter, and that was all he knew. When I asked him if he knew Count Dracula, and could tell me anything of his castle, both he and his wife crossed themselves, and saying that they knew nothing at all, simply refused to speak further. It was so near the time of starting that I had no time to ask anyone else, for it was all very mysterious and not by any means comforting. Just before I was leaving, the old lady came up to my room and said in a very hysterical way, Must, must you, go? you go? Oh, young heir, must you go? She was in such an excited state that she seemed to have lost her grip on what German she knew and mixed it all up with some other language, which I did not know at all. I was just able to follow her by asking many questions. When I told her that I must go at once and that I was engaged on important business, she asked again. Do you know what day it is? I answered that it was the 4th of May. She shook her head and said it again. Oh yes, I know that. I know that. But do you know what day it is? On my saying that I did not understand, she went on. It is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you not know that tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all the evil things in the world will have full sway? Do you know where you are going and what you are going to? She was in such evident distress that I tried to comfort her, but without effect. Finally, she went down on her knees and implored me not to go, at least to wait a day or two before starting. It was all very ridiculous, but I did not feel comfortable. However, there was business to be done, and I could allow nothing to interfere with it. I therefore tried to raise her up and said, as gravely as I could, that I thanked her, but my duty was imperative, and that I must go. She then rose and dried her eyes, and taking a crucifix from her neck offered it to me. I did not know what to do, for as an English churchman, I have been taught to regard such things as, in some measure, idolatrous, and yet it seemed so ungracious to refuse an old lady meaning so well and in such a state of mind. She saw, I suppose, the doubt in my face, for she put the rosary around my neck and said, For your mother's sake! and went out of the room. I am writing up this part of the diary whilst I am waiting for the coach, which is, of course, light. And the crucifix is still around my neck, whether it is the old lady's fear, or the many ghostly traditions of this place. 
or the crucifix itself, I do not know. But I am not feeling nearly as easy in my mind as usual. If this book should ever reach Mina before I do, let it bring my goodbye. Whoa! Huh, here comes the coach. 5th of May. The Castle. The grey of the morning has passed, and the sun is high over the distant horizon, which seemed jagged, whether with trees or hills I know not, for it is so far off that big things and little are mixed. I am not sleepy, and as I am not to be cold till I awake, naturally I write till sleep comes. There are many odd things to put down, and lest who reads them may fancy that I dined too well before I left Bistritz. Let me put down my dinner exactly. I dined on what they called robber steak, bits of bacon, onion and beef seasoned with red pepper and strung on sticks and roasted over the fire, in the simple style of the London's cat's meat. The wine was golden mediasque, which produced a queer sting on the tongue, which however is not disagreeable. I had only a couple of glasses of this and nothing else. When I got in the coach the driver had not taken his seat and I saw him talking with the landlady. They were evidently talking of me, for every now and then they looked at me, and some of them who were sitting on the bench outside the door, which they called by a name meaning word-bearer, came and listened, and then looked at me, most of them pityingly. I could hear a lot of the words often repeated, queer words, for there were many nationalities in the crowd, so I quietly got my polyglot dictionary from my bag and looked them out. I must say they were not cheering at me, for amongst them were Ordog, Satan, Pukol, Hell, Strejoka, Witch, Vrlok, and Vrlkoslak, both of which mean the same thing, one being Slavic and the other Servian for something that is either werewolf or vampire. Memo, I must ask the Count about these superstitions. When we started, the crowd round the inn door, which had by this time swelled to a considerable size, all made the sign of the cross and pointed two fingers towards me. With some difficulty, with some difficulty, I got a fellow passenger to tell me what they meant. He would not answer at first, but on learning that I was English, he explained that it was a charm or guard against the evil eye. This was not very pleasant for me. Just starting for an unknown place to meet an unknown man, but everyone seemed so kind-hearted and so sorrowful and so sympathetic that I could not but be touched. I shall never forget the last glimpse which I had of the inn-yard and its crowd of picturesque figures, all crossing themselves as they stood around the wide archway, with its background of rich foliage of oleander and orange trees in green stubs clustered in the centre of the yard. Then our driver, whose wide linen drawers covered the whole front of the box seat. Gotzia, they called them, cracked his big whip over his four small horses, which ran abreast, and we set off on our journey. I soon lost sight and recollection of ghostly fears in the beauty of the scene, as we drove along. Although had I known the language, or rather languages, which my fellow passengers were speaking, I might not have been able to throw them off so easily. Before us lay a green sloping land of forests and woods, with here and there steep hills crowned with clumps of trees or with farmhouses, the blank gable end to the road. 
There was everywhere a bewildering mass of fruit blossom, apple, plum, pear, cherry, and as we drove by I could see the green grass under the trees spangled with the fallen petals. In and out amongst these green hills of what they call here the Mitchellland, ran the road losing itself as it swept around the grassy curve, or was shut out by the straggling end of pine woods, which here and there ran down the hillsides like tongues of flame. The road was rugged, but still we seemed to fly over it with a feverish haste. I could not understand then what the haste meant, but the driver was evidently bent on losing no time in reaching Borgo Prund. I was told that this road is in summertime excellent, but that it had not yet been put in order after the winter snows. In this respect, it is different from the general run of the roads in the Carpathians, for it is an old tradition that they are not to be kept in too good order. Of old, the hospitals would not repair them, lest the Turks should think they were preparing to bring in foreign troops and so hasten the war, which was always really at loading point. Beyond the green swelling hills of the Middle Land rose mighty slopes of the forest up to the lofty steeps of the Carpathians themselves. Right and left of us they towered, falling full upon them and bringing out all the glorious colours of this beautiful range. Deep blue and purple in the shadows of the peaks, green and brown where grass and rock mingled, and an endless perspective of jagged rock and pointed crags till these were themselves lost in the distance, where the snowy peaks rose grandly. Here and there seemed mighty rifts in the mountains, through which, as the sun began to sink, we saw now and again the white gleam of falling water. One of my companions touched my arm as we swept around the base of a hill, and opened up the lofty, snow-covered peak of a mountain which seemed, as we wound around our serpentine way, to be right before us. Look, it stands thick! God's seat! And he crossed himself reverently. As we wound on our endless way, and the sun sank lower and lower behind us. The shadows of the evening began to creep round us. This was emphasized by the fact that the snowy mountaintop still held the sunset, and seemed to glow out with a delicate cool pink. Here and there we passed Xex and Slovaks, all in picturesque attire, but I noticed the goiter was painfully prevalent. By the roadside were many crosses, and as we swept by, my companies all crossed themselves. Here and there was a peasant man or woman kneeling before a shrine, who did not even turn round as we approached, but seemed in the self-surrender of devotion to have neither eyes nor ears for the outer world. There were many things new to me. For instance, hayricks in the trees, and here and there very beautiful masses of weeping birch, their white stems shining like silver through the delicate green of the leaves. Now and again we passed a later wagon, the ordinary peasant's cart, with its long, snake-like vertebrae, calculated to suit the inequalities of the road. On this were sure to be seated quite a group of homecoming peasants, the Xieks with their white and the Slovaks with their coloured sheepskins, the latter carrying lance fashion their long staves with axe at end. As the evening fell, it began to get very cold, and the growing twilight seemed to merge into one dark mistiness of the gloom of the trees, oak, beech, and pine. Though in the valleys which ran deep between the spurs of the hills, as we ascended through the pass, 
The dark fur stood out here and there against the background of the late-lying snow. Sometimes, as the road was cut through the pine woods that seemed in the darkness to be closing down upon us, great masses of grayness, which here and there bestrewed the trees, produced a peculiar weird and solemn effect, which carried on the thoughts and grim fancies engendered earlier in the evening. When the falling sunset threw into strange relief the ghost-like clouds which amongst the Carpathians seemed to wind ceaselessly through the valleys. Sometimes the hills were so steep that, despite our driver's haste, the horses could only go slowly. I wished to get down and walk up them, as we do at home, but the driver would not hear of it. No, no, he said. You must not walk here. The dogs are too fierce. And then he added, with what he evidently meant for grim pleasantry, for he looked around to catch the approving smile of the rest. And you may have enough of such matters before you go to sleep. The only stop he would make was a moment pause to light his lamps. When it grew dark, there seemed to be some excitement amongst the passengers, and they kept speaking to him, one after the other, as though urging him to further speed. He lashed the horses unmercifully with his long whip, and with wild cries of encouragement, urged them on to further exertions. Then, through the darkness, I could see a sort of patch of grey light ahead of us, as though there were a cleft in the hills. The excitement of the passengers grew greater. The crazy coach rocked on its great leather springs and swayed like a boat tossed on a stormy sea. I had to hold on. The road grew more level and we appeared to fly along. Then the mountains seemed to come nearer to us on each side and to frown down upon us. We were entering on the Borgo Pass. One by one, several of the passengers offered me gifts which they pressed upon me with an earnestness which would take no denial. These were certainly of an odd and varied kind, but each was given in simple good faith, with a kindly word and a blessing, and that strange mixture of fear-meaning movements which I had seen outside the hotel at Bistritz, the sign of the cross and the guard against the evil eye. Then, as we flew along, the driver leaned forward, and on each side the passengers, craning over the edge of the coach, peered eagerly into the darkness. It was evident that something very exciting was either happening or expected. But though I asked each passenger, no one would give me the slightest explanation. This state of excitement kept on for some little time, and at last we saw before us the pass opening out onto the eastern side. There were dark, rolling clouds overhead and in the air the heavy, oppressive sense of thunder. It seemed as though the mountain range had separated two atmospheres, and that now we had got into the thunderous one. I was now myself looking out for the conveyance, which was to take me to the Count. Each moment I expected to see the glare of lamps through the blackness, but all was dark. The only light was the flickering rays of our own lamps, in which the steam from our hard-driven horses rose in a white cloud. We could see now the sandy road lying right before us, but there was on it no sign of a vehicle. The passengers recoiled back with a sign of gladment, which seemed to mock my own disappointment. I was already thinking what I had best do, when the driver, looking at his watch, said to the others something which I could hardly hear. It was spoken so quietly and in so low a tone 
I thought it was an hour less than the time. Then turning to me, he said in German worse than my own, There is no carriage here. The heir is not expected after all. He will now come on to Bukovina and return tomorrow or the next day. Better the next day. Whilst he was speaking, the horses began to neigh and snort and plunge wildly, so that the driver had to hold them up. Then, amongst a chorus of screams and a universal crossing of themselves, a kalech with four horses drove up behind us, overtook us, and drew up beside the coach. I could see from the flash of our lamps as the rays fell upon them that the horses were coal black and splendid animals. They were driven by a tall man with a long brown beard and a grey black hat which seemed to hide his face from us. I could only see the gleam of a pair of very bright eyes which seemed red in the lamplight as he turned to us. He said to the driver, You are early tonight, my friend. The man stammered in reply. The English... The, the English heir was in a hurry. To which the stranger replied. That is why, I suppose, you wished him to go on to Bukovina. You cannot deceive me, my friend. I know too much, and my horses are swift. As he spoke, he smiled and the lamplight fell on a hard-looking mouth, with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth, as white as ivory. One of my companions whispered to another, The line from Berger Leonor. Den die todent ritten schnell. For the dead, travel fast. And that is part one of Dracula. Well, listeners, this is the very beginning of this classic tale, and I hope I've piqued your curiosity. And also, seeing as today is a holiday, I wasn't originally going to do an episode, but I figured I have time today, and I'll spend that time recording something special for my very special listeners. That's you. In saying that, I will, however, be taking a break on Monday to hit the ground running on the Wednesday next week. Rest assured, though, I'll be shaking up episodes with new tales as well as further narrations of the Dracula series. I hope you enjoyed this episode of this series today as we explore this narrative together. Now listeners, for my second favourite part of this podcast, thanking my Patreon supporters. But before I do, I have a brand new podcast supporter, Dolphin N. Cow. Let us all welcome him with open arms into the Earl Grey Enforcer family. Thank you so much, mate, for choosing to support me. Now, me and Dolphin and Cow go back years, having first met and talked via email ages ago. So it is such a pleasure to have your support, mate. Thank you so much. Now, for my awesome Ode Night Tea Titans. This time, I've themed each of your thank yous on the grounds of vampire clans that you could manage or could be part of in the vampire universe. I hope you like these mini-stories. Matthew J. Bauer, Clan Opulence. Of all the vampire clans that operate in this world, there is the subtle network of Clan Opulence that finds a foothold amongst the wealthy and heavy consumers of this world. As a clan, their sole focus is to indulge and enjoy themselves, feasting endlessly day in and day out, with their only concern being when the food resource dries up. 
They are vicious, insidious, strong together and even stronger alone, and tapping into a dark, hidden power. Their key talent though as a clan is on sneaking their way into dark deals and delivering their prized resource to their hungry partners and allies. What is that resource? An item heavily sought after for dark magic purposes. That resource, my brethren, is skin. Of all the dark vampiric trade that exists in the world, skin is the clan opulence trademark. Used for scrying, cursing and tracking and instilling fear, skin is what keeps people away and brings the vampire brethren in. Let it be said that this clan is never left wanting, but should you wish to join it, you'll need a bit of skin in the game with payment up front. Maya, Clan Felix. Clan Felix is well known around the dark network of vampire covens to be masters of mirth, mischief and fun. But don't let this energetic spirit claim this clan as an opportunity for weakness or vulnerability. Far from it. Clan Felix are specialists in the arts of bodily transformation, particularly animal biomorphosis. Every clan member possesses the ability to transform their body into any creature of equal size, with their preference and strongest of them regressing, or as they would say rather, evolving into a large feline. They use this ability to spy, collect information, and generate targets or potential hits or intel on threats to their clan. Joining Clan Felix requires you to work within their rules, but they are by no means averse to some mischief. Solstra, Clan Mesmer. One of the most dangerous clans to exist in modern society, with their fingers dipped in technology and high-rise assets, Clan Mesmer are master business professionals, possessing an attuned skill set to simply say the word and listeners obey. Feared by all other clans for their indomitable will and the ability to control the will of others. They do have a weakness, however. They all have a tell. Their eyes are a raging purple, covered often by contact lenses or dark lenses, and their skin is cold to touch. No exception regarding these traits. Some have said they descend from creatures that resemble the lizards of our world, but no one truly knows, and they would never tell. Clan Mesmer operates on value alone, nothing more. If you cease to provide, then you cease to exist. Stay useful or be forgotten forever. Thank all of you for supporting me, mates. Today's mini stories are inspired by Dracula, but also the old games I used to play, Vampire the Masquerade, namely. In that game, they would have all different vampire clans, with different personalities, their own goals, and specialty traits. So I decided I'd marry the two for today's mini stories. I hope you enjoyed them. Now, for my lovely white tea warlords. I own cows, bovine brutalists. The Bovine Brutalists are a group of vampire hunters whose strict methodology is to follow the code of vampiric subterfuge. Don't show the vampires we know and put a stake in every living room. Their specialist tricks are to cover oneself in the blood of an animal, to drive vampires wild, but to also deceive them. The Bovine Brutalists first cover themselves in cow blood, place their victim, I mean bait, in clan hotspots under the cover of a fake cow corpse. Wait for them to come sniffing and then, bam, a stake through the heart. The weaker vampires, you see, they don't hunt people. They have just been born. They don't know how to think, how to decide. They act on impulse alone. 
and it's the bovine brutalist method to cull the vampire horde from the neophytes all the way up to the veteran vampires of this world, one stake at a time. And Lee Bauer, the network. Lee Bauer heads up a network of vampire slayers who operate on the outskirts of law, organizing technology companies and pharmaceutical giants to produce off-the-market gray sector weaponry for a hidden slaying task force. The network isn't an idea or a representation of a group of companies working together. Instead, the network is a Terminator squad, supported by under-the-table transactions and covert decision-makers, using the most advanced technology to spearhead the fight against the Dark Forces. With tools such as phosphorus blades, UV-tipped activated arrows, and sunfire knuckle dusters to name a few, the network is a clan slayer, one that vows to eliminate all vampires from this world. Mates, I hope you enjoyed your many stories. I wanted to flip the table for your stories in this episode, to show the other side of this world, fighting back and resisting the vampire clan influence. Thank you both for being awesome and supporting me, and go get those vampires. And of course, my Elgrain forces. Jad Warren, Joss Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and new to the fold, Dolphin Incow. Thank all of you for being the blood in this podcast veins. Have a wonderful weekend, mates, and stay safe. Have loads and loads of Easter eggs on my account and chow them down. Also, if you get a couple of seconds, leaving an iTunes review for this show helps immensely because then I can find more awesome people like yourself. And if you want to be just as fantastic as Dolphin and Cow and my amazing Patreon supporters, swing on by my Patreon page, www.patreon forward slash sfgt.com and you can see what levels there are and support the show at a level you're comfortable with. Thank you for listening and as always, my lovelies, till next we make.